Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a special, it's almost a retro episode. Why is it retro? I recorded this in 2017 <laughs> with my pal Perry McCarthy, the amazing Perry McCarthy, former Formula One driver, kind of, sort of, uh, definite IMSA GTP, Group C era, you name it, uh, Le Mans, fantastic guy, short, short career in a lot of top series, a long, long career though, in amazing stories, often at his own expense, often with adversity. Oh Lord, known Perry for a while, watched him forever, love the guy to death. He is seriously one of my favorite storytellers. His autobiography, you must get it. It's been out for a while. It's not exactly uh, fresh and brand spanking new, but I figured some of the yarns that are spun in his book, uh, you get some of them here. The main reason for the call, back when I was still early, youngish and doing the podcast, was, hey, Perry and I sure have a lot of fun when we talk about whatever and reminisce about the past. And let's talk about the strangest car you've ever raced. And I assumed, and I guess was correct in the assumption, that the abysmal 1992 Andrea Moda Formula One creation fit the bill, which he confirms. So this was the intent for the call. But in typical fashion for he and I, it starts off wandering and it just wanders off to other places afterwards. Uh, we open up talking about racing in America where I first saw him 30 plus years ago. And anyways, a couple minutes in, we get to what you probably would not believe if you don't know the story actually existed. Formula One actually allowed this stuff to go on and this Andrea Sassetti owned Formula One team in 1992 to be a easily the biggest embarrassment I think it's ever had. So if you're a recent fan to Formula One, again, I just don't think you're going to believe some of the stories that he tells, but they are indeed all true. A couple other quick notes here before we get going with our man, Pell, aka Perry McCarthy. This was recorded again years ago before I had a much better setup that you're hearing me use right now. So I guess I apologize for the difference in audio quality. It's by no means perfect, but to use my favorite Juan Montoya term, it is what it is. Uh, this also has some adult language in it and I could go through and bleep all of it out, but I didn't feel like it. So that's one thing. And second, just telling you up front, this is not meant for children. And if your ears are sensitive to foul words, there are many, but whatever they come out of his mouth, they stay in. Stop listening now. You've been duly warned. I don't want to hear any complaints, any whatever else you've been told. Stop listening. There you go. All right. Big thanks as always to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com for their support. Let's get rolling with crazy Perry McCarthy and a bunch of stories that oh man we got to get some more from him too and there are plenty i absolutely adored formula 3000 hmm. um but i loved racing in america well we loved having you here it just wasn't long enough so uh, it, it was a shame I, I would love to stay that long i really would i still tell folks about watching your pole lap at uh 
Sears Point as one of the, uh, the great upsets during the GTP era when no one in their right mind would have picked uh, a non-factory prototype to, uh, to do what you did. Well, let's... Um, let's you know the nightmare I still have um, was we got the pole there. Um, if it had been wet in qualifying at Watkins Glen, I would easily have had the pole there. Um, we got the pole at New Orleans. Um, but the one that killed me, I mean killed me, it's funny, I don't look back at too much um, there's a few things where I think, oh, God. But the one that haunts me was Tampa. Mm. And we were on a lap there, which was uh, stupid, you know? I mean, really stupid. And it was by midpoint around the track, I was one and a half seconds faster than anybody. <laughs> uh, so this, this was going to be in excess of two seconds on pole by, you know? And the thing had like skip scrape marks down the side of it where I'd been kissing, coming out of corners and etc. And we come out of the final corner and the fucking thing broke down. <sighs> and I I couldn't I actually couldn't get out of the car for over half an hour. I was just just empty, you know? Anyway. Sorry mate. I'll no That's brilliant. Well let's start with uh let's start with strangest cars. Uh I I wouldn't dare lead you towards a uh, towards an answer, but I know that having watched kind of through my fingers because it was that bad most of the time in 1992, uh, I'm guessing the Andrea Moda Formula One car sticks in your mind as the strangest, worst, oddest, you name it. But uh, I don't know if that's the case, but I'm guessing uh, if there's a, a short list of strange, weird, painful cars that Perry McCarthy has driven, uh, that one would rank near the top. Well, defo, definitely. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't. It didn't just stop at the car. It was a strange team owned by a really strange bloke. So how did you know, that? Go, how did that come together? Andrea Sassetti. I wouldn't call him an Italian shoe magnet because it's not as if the world. You know, it's not as if all of our wives are wearing his shoes. But how did that come together? Because we'll get into the the craziness of the car, which. I think had potential, unrealized largely, but how did this whole thing come together with him? The only potential that car had was as a flower pot. <laughs> um, it was so dangerous, it was all black. All we needed to do was put brass handles on the side and it would have saved time burying me in Moreno, believe me. <laughs> oh but um, yeah, it, it wasn't just a strange car, it was like, you know, Sassetti was a strange guy, as you said, um, apparently he was a shoe manufacturer, but I did try a pair of his shoes on, and I would be surprised if anybody could earn a living from uh, those things, let alone anything else. So yeah, it all came together, he decided he wanted to own an F1 team, and he contacted um, Nick, Nick Worth, um, because Nick had a F1 car on the drawing board from a couple of years before, he'd drawn it up, I think he'd drawn it up for BMW. So then Andrea came in and said, right, you know, it bought the rights to Colony, but I think it got absolutely mullered on that deal. Um, Colony had done a dick turping on him big time. Mm. And uh, he just found out he had a box of bits. So they commissioned this car. Uh, but the thing was two years out of date, you know, and we had the Judd V10 engine in, but uh, it's no good when Andrea wasn't paying the bills for that because then the engine didn't turn up. So we were looking for a track that went downhill because there were quite a few times out of the 10 races I did, five, five of them, I actually didn't even get out onto the track. <laughs> when I did get out on track in that car, um, 
well, of course, it hadn't been set up. They hadn't made a seat for me at any time. I was getting smacked around like mad, which wasn't too bad because it was only lasting for about one or two laps anyway. Although I did do an endurance sprint um, at Imola in pre-qualifying. That was a whole seven laps. Uh, thank God I was fit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, they did, just didn't know what they were doing. I reckon you like, alluded to the fact that it may have been okay. If the car had been run by a good team, I don't know, we might have qualified for three or four races, but, you know, we were off the pace anyway, um, but not as off the pace as, um, you know, we were, or pardon me, we were, we were making it more off the pace than the car maybe could have been. Did that make sense? Yeah, so here's, this is one of, I've actually never asked someone this question before in motor racing. Did you have the opportunity to get an understanding, feel, or opinion of how the car might perform. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the only opinion I formed was out of sheer fear. <laughs> I, I, or I, I don't care what Michael Schumacher says, I think all racing drivers get frightened at some moments in time, for a very brief moment in time, maybe. Driving that bloody thing, I was frightened at every single corner, but my career was hanging by a thread, so you have to stay in, grip the steering wheel, steering wheel tire, bite through your tongue and pray. And that's exactly what I was doing because it was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And there were some points when I was getting out of the car thinking, what am I doing? I, you know, I remember at the um, Belgium Grand Prix at Spa, do you know a journalist called Tony Dodgins? Yes. Well, Tony K is F1 journalist, and he came up to me before he said, Perry, I've got a really, really bad feeling about this. Please don't get in the car. I said, Tony, I said, I've got Karen and the kids at home. Nobody can afford to pay the bills. I've got to try and make a name for myself. I've got to get in the car. And I went out, and I knew it wasn't going to hold together, so I went for like, a quality lap on my very first lap. And I've come out of the source, headed straight for Rouge, absolutely flat out. And as I turned into Rouge, I just noticed the steering was, I mean, very, very heavy. And if it had been any other car, I would have gone with it and just said, I'll get over it, you know, hold on to it. But this thing, I went, no, and I smashed onto the brakes. And it's lucky I did, because I couldn't turn the steering wheel. And I was heading absolutely head on for the wall. And even in that thing, you put in, I don't know, 170, 180 there. And I just managed to turn the steering wheel off the track, along the barriers, up the top, over the hill, Anyway, I got it back, did some little low speed tests, and I thought, you know, steering rack's flexing. Because of the download, you know, even that thing had some downfalls. And I got it back into the pits. And I said, um, guys, I think the steering rack's flexing because it completely jammed on me going into a rouge. And they said, oh, we know. I said, what do you mean you know? They said, uh, we uh, took it off Roberto's car last week. And uh, I said, and then you put it on mine. They went, yeah. So then Max heard, Max Mosey heard about that and everything, and else, and they banned the team. You know, oh. um, but that was that was very. You know, we all have moments, all racing drivers, where half inch there, two degrees there, quarter of a second earlier, quarter of a second later, you know, you're finished. Um, but that was that was pretty close. So, following on my last question. Were there any opportunities for you to actually pull in 
to the pits at whatever track and say feels like there's a touch too much understeer low speed uh feels like center of pressure might be off in one direction or the other i mean those are the granular normal bits that you're used to popping in and telling didn't an engineer to tweak didn't, didn't, didn't do enough laps i mean i'm not picking myself up but you know i'm pretty good at feeling a car i'm pretty good at feeling grip and knowing what's happening at any moment um so yeah, maybe not the best in the world but you know pretty damn good but there, there weren't enough laps you you know i wasn't even my potential in the car before the thing broke down. You have to remember the entire team was like Disney's last wish. <laughs> Come on everybody, let's go racing. <laughs> my head mechanic was goofy. <laughs> so granted, and you know, for our, our listeners, you and I have discussed this many times before, so I'm trying to come up with new and inventive ways to ask uh, things we, we've discussed before, but where does this rate, and feel free to big yourself up all you want, but I've seen you do some heroic things uh, in a race car before where, you know, uh, massive balls and, and giant talent are required where where does driving this car fall into or does it even fall into the use of that skill and talent or was it sheer getting over one's fight or flight self-preservation gene uh, and the talent part maybe was not even required uh, in this vehicle there was no talent in, in the F1 car zero there wasn't enough time it wasn't it wasn't there for enough laps you know that was um, you, you've got to you've got to do more than one or two laps to begin to try and extend the car, try and extend yourself, uh, and and push for all it's worth. If it had held together for seven, eight laps, okay, maybe I could have used something that you know I'm quite good at. Um, but no, it was just dr literally driving it around for one, two laps as fast as I could. Um, but yeah, no, on that, honestly, Marshall, there was no talent. It was, it was, it was heartbreaking, mate, because I'm passionate about this game, as you know. Of course. And it took a, took an awful lot for me to come through to get to Formula One. So, you know, to end up looking like Mickey Mouse on acid was, uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Obviously, the States was, you know, coming from, you know, spending time with you guys in America and, you know, generally having a really good time um, you know really enjoying my driving really enjoying my qualifying and then to come into Formula 1 which had been my dream and then to look like a blooming idiot was um, you know it's a bit of a shame really but I'm still around well, let's shift gears to the other related topic of uh, pre-qualifying uh, and then uh, we'll close on some classic stories so you were among a small, hearty group of uh, hopefuls, idiots, uh, and whatnot sent out for pre-qualifying, a, a fairly small but interesting era in Formula One where I guess you could say an over-subscription uh, of cars and entries led the FIA to say, okay, well, we're actually going to have a, a pre-qualifying tournament at rounds to see who gets the privilege of going through to try and make the show. What was that experience like for you, knowing that, uh, by and large, 
you're getting to see a track for the first time in this Andrea motor car when it's cold, damp, dusty, you name it. I mean, what's the process of waking up for your first pre-qualifying session and where's your head at knowing that uh, this is just strange? Dread and depressed. <laughs> I mean, I am such an idiot. Yes, every time I woke up getting ready for pre-qualifying, I just somehow believed maybe today it might be better. Maybe the card holds together. Maybe they put it together correctly even. It could be great, you know? Like, if it rained, maybe I could do maybe I could do something to actually put the thing on the grid, you know, because it'll equal, equal it up a bit. Um, but you, you're just going there and, um, you know, it's breaking down and it happened so many times and there were more dramas coming along. I mean, you know, you have to remember that at the French Grand Prix, the team didn't even turn up. And people said to me, why didn't you qualify for the French Grand Prix? And I said, well, we had one or two problems. It happened in Canada. I remember talking to an American guy in a bar after pre-qualifying. He said, hey, you're Perry McCarthy. So I went, yeah. So he said, uh, how'd it go today? So I said, well, you know, basically the engines didn't turn up. So we couldn't go on the track because, you know, we couldn't pre-qualify. So he said, oh, no. Okay, good luck for the race. And I thought, Mm, you're not quite getting this, are you? <laughs> anyway, he bought me a beer, so it's fine. You know, I talk to anybody if they buy me a beer. Um, so that was, that, that was the thing. You know, it, it is difficult to... The only optimism I did have is by the end of the year, when we're actually in qualifying official because of uh, a problem with the Brabham team, they, they had fallen over financially. So it meant that we were, there was no pre-qualifying straight into qualifying. And the start, as you know, it rains, and I thought, right, I might be able to get this thing on the grid. You know, in fact, if it rained hard enough, I might be able to get it, you know, inside top 20. That's how I really thought. But um, it was dry, and as I told you, the story ended, as uh, I was mentioning earlier. So, yeah, Marshall, there's, there's nothing to say. There's, there's no normal platform to look at with this Andrea Motor experience. There was no talent involved. There was no being able to take it to the edge. The thing just fell over immediately, you know? That was the problem. Pre-qualifying, well, you know, you just mutter the pit lane, aren't you? That's, you know, that's it. You, you feel like the silly boy Lemon who's sitting in the corner with a dunce hat on. <laughs> that, that, was, that was how I felt, you know? I felt ashamed. I really did. Wow. So, tell me about Monaco then, where uh, our boy Monaco Roberto. Yeah, well, Roberto Moreno makes it through, and it is it is hailed as you know almost a a divine event where the hand of God has reached down and made this happen. I remember uh, looking at uh, some footage of it not too long ago, and uh, Andrea Sassetti had the look of, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a more content and pleased Formula One team owner, and this was simply because his both of his cars were not excluded from further participation in the event. It seemed, again, this was for your teammate, like this was a magical occurrence. My immediate thought was, you're probably sitting there going, really? The, fir the first time we get in and having gone through all I've gone through, it's my teammate, not me? What were those emotions like? I, I couldn't give a stuff by then, to be quite honest, Marshall. It's, uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that I wasn't going to get that car in because I did one lap. 
that was it. You know, it's um, you know Roberto got the car in, drove it well, and as you alluded to again, it's the the car. Yeah, it was the size of the circuits. So maybe precision driving and good driving would be enough to get over anybody else's mistakes because the other cars were, you know, definitely faster than ours. But maybe they had their own set of problems. And I do remember there were a couple of people that had some massive problems in qualifying. So that, that of course, did help Roberto get through. I mean, Roberto has, you know, got a superb record as a racing driver. So he's, he's no mug. Um, you know, I, uh, I would have expected that if the car could have qualified, I would have qualified it. Um, but, you know, as I say, Monaco was three laps of Monaco. That was it. It felt like a, you know, grand tour package. Come to Monaco, you know, <laughs> stay in a nice hotel, eat good food, do three laps in a Formula One car, then go get drunk. <laughs> it was the uh, fan experience. I li- and they gave you a super license. That's so kind of them. Well, you know, and even that was uh, difficult because I hadn't actually done enough racing to be a Formula One driver by, as far as they were concerned. Um, where it was terribly gratifying to be issued with a super license is actually everybody had to vote on it, which is Frank Williams, Fabio Briatore, Ron Dennis, uh, Ferrari, Minardi, uh, Bernie, Max, and they all decided that I should be in Formula One. So that was, that was uh, I always take that as being quite a special super license because it wasn't something that because I'd done this amount of racing and been funded in there and so you automatically get a super license this one had to pass possibly the highest test going really of uh, of perception you know uh, and then of course I had my Formula 1 season now that'll teach them to trust me <laughs> 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 they, they politely asked for it back um yeah. So you're you're one of the great commiserators in the sport. Uh, there was this again fairly tight band of folks, uh, both the season prior to yours and in '92 and such of pre-qualifying. And it's whether it's uh, Bertrand Gachot trying to make the field in a flat Subaru-powered Coloni to you know Bruno Giacomelli in a W12 Life to all kinds of oddities and whatnot. Was there any kind of... That always made me laugh, actually. Bruno signed for life, but his lawyer got him off with seven races. <laughs> <laughs> was there any that sense... That car was... You know, I think that car was maybe even worse than ours. Yeah, it's a lovely concept, and at least they painted it red. But um, I think that's about where its uh, merit stopped. But was there any sense of... Uh, either camaraderie or you know how's this i when i think of the the group of drivers who were embroiled in pre-qualifying you all were very much uh you know off into the breach we go types i don't know if it was willful delusion or steadfast refusal to uh you know not make it into formula one but was there ever ever any fun conversations with others who uh, unfortunately were packing up uh earlier than desired on the weekend uh, through this pre-qualifying concept. Well, I mean, Gabriele Tarquini and uh, Andrea Chiesa, as me, Roberto, I mean, you know, we were the lowest of the low, of course, back then. I didn't speak to Moreno much, to be quite frank. We're not best mates. Um, But, you know, Gabriele and, you know, Andrea, you know, we'd just look at each other and shrug our shoulders because, you know, we all know what we're doing and we all know that we didn't stand a blooming chance, you know. So, no, it was, um, you know, generally, it was, 
just uh, you have to also remember actually Marshall is that once we actually failed to pre-qualify we didn't even have passes for Saturday or Sunday to return to the, to the Grand Prix <laughs> I mean this is how brutal it was you know it's, I remember coming up to the Grand Prix fence one time trying to get in and the and you know what I'm like I'm not very good at taking no for an answer and I didn't have a pass and the security guards looking at me going you can't come in and I held a copy of the Formula 1 program up showing him that I was in there as one of the drivers as part of the team and finally he let me in as well as I signed it for him <laughs> <laughs> I mean who else has to go through this nonsense it's ridiculous <laughs> but it's all in my book Flat Out Flat Broke normally in 9.99 published by Haynes <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. oh lord this is brutal well, let's uh, let's close, mate, and uh, I'll honestly I'll leave the selection up to you. Uh, just a couple of you know your your favorite or uh, you know classic stories you uh, from your career that you love to tell in you know parties or to impress uh, new folks who must uh, fall in love with Pell. Do you know something? I I very rarely talk about motor racing because it's very difficult. Um, people generally don't know what it takes and I suppose that's that's our job is to just entertain and without them needing to understand exactly what's happening inside the head inside the heart and in your life to actually be able to do that so you know, I'm very passionate or was certainly very passionate about my career and it was that optimism and you know you said something just a moment ago sometimes in this game it's actually just as well to be deluded because if you really looked at the odds of being able to forge your career as a racing driver, of being able to get to the top and compete in all the different formulas that I've been lucky enough to do, then if you look to that starting off, you think you don't stand a chance. You would not stand a chance, especially with no money. So being deluded, I said, no, I may be able to do this. I may be able to come through. And it's been one hell of a ride coming through. So I think the entire adventure, the entire career has been fantastic. There have been lots of great times. There have been some fantastic friendships and great fun with them, other drivers, you know? And I think that's the era that I come from. Out in the States, I had the most amazing time, the opportunity to show that, you know, maybe I wasn't too bad. Um, and that was... Uh, that was that was wonderful to be in a car that okay as you know most of the time we didn't last the race something would go wrong but to keep putting it up front against the you know multi 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 million dollar teams was you know it was gratifying and the weather's great out your way as well which was pretty nice so lots of lots of good times but for me it's just so much about the people the people I've worked with the people I've raced against um and the people in the media that have really I owe, owe so much of my career to you guys because the people who believed in me um, that obviously kept me going and uh, it kept me attracted to different teams well let's do this let's let's capture one right now which I again I know this is something we've already breached a little bit but uh, or broached a little bit but I think this might be fun and uh, I'll uh I'll put some thought into this as well. Watkins Glen. Watkins Glen. Because I, I came to the States and uh, an invitation to drive the Camel Lights car 
um, I brilliantly broke my foot in the pit lane before I got in the car. So then I went out and we won the race. So that was good, but that was a bit painful. Um, and this was with the that, uh, the Spice, was that the uh, the factory Spice that's right, team? Spice USA, yeah. So because of that win, they said to me, right, we're going to take a chance on you and we'll put you in the GTP car and you're going to partner Tommy Kendall. And Tommy Kendall was the world Chevrolet driver, you know, a good driver, very fancy. And then I thought, okay, and Watkins Glen was his local track. But I've got Formula One in my mind. So I knew that every time I get in to do something, I've got to advertise. I've got to be, you know, just do whatever I can to literally try and star. And that's the name of the game. Yeah. And it went very well for me. I went an awful lot faster than Tommy. Um, I was 1.4 seconds quicker than the next normally aspirated car in qualifying. And then come the start of the race, it's my big chance in America, it rained. And I managed to come through all the, because it's a real turbo track, Watkins Glen, and we've just got 600 brake horsepower in the Chevy. So I managed to overtake everybody inside three laps and then pulled away at two seconds a lap and just cleared off from Davy Jones in the Jaguar and cleared off into the distance until we had an electrical problem. And I think that kind of all of a sudden people were starting to go, well, Perry's here and he's on form, you know? And then of course, immediately followed that up with Sears Point, uh, put it on the pole, um, again, so, that was by 1.4 seconds quicker than anybody. So let's, and, let's talk uh, about this real quick. So you come over for the first time at Watkins Glen. I'm not saying Watkins is the most uh, technical track in the world, but it is certainly one where you have to embrace high speed. You have to embrace rhythm. Um, it's a place where commitment is certainly required to succeed and you feature there you then go to my home track at sears point where it is flowing it is a bit technical but there's also maybe a little bit of a difference to Watkins in that you don't have much runoff between the track and very hard barriers earth barriers at that point in time in many places so uh, going off at Watkins is going to hurt don't get me wrong but at least at Sears Point, uh, there have been a lot of broken bones uh, if a mistake has been made there. Tell me about coming to this uh, Northern California track in a naturally aspirated Spice Chevy and taking on the factory Nissan GTPs, Porsche 962s, the Jaguars and such. Uh, this was not... And Toyotas. And Toyotas. Uh, this was not a scenario where I think any fan was expecting to see this white and day-glow green and orangish um, kit car absolutely spoil the qualifying plans of these giant GTP factories in, you know, uh, in 1990 era when uh, such things were just really not even uh, considered possible. It's, it, it just seems natural to me that I could do it. Um, the... You know, I got, I got to the track, and okay, it's a track, I'm in the car, right, let's go as fast as we can. Um, I did bump it, actually, in, um, I went around the outside of Derek Bailey in uh, in testing, and uh, he came up to my team manager afterwards and said, that boy of yours isn't, isn't long for this world, Julie. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but I like Derek, he's a great guy. Uh, you know, always thought the world of him. 
Um, so it did make me smile on that one. Um, but then I did bang the car and the mechanics had to repair it overnight before qualifying. And I felt awful. I really felt so bad and I was sitting on the side just a bit deflated. And one of the mechanics came up and said, hey buddy, we didn't finish work on your goddamn car till about four o'clock this morning. And like the slug I am, I just looked up and I said, I'm really, really sorry. He said, look, it's a pleasure. We believe in you. We know you can do it. And boy, that was like pulling a pin out of a grenade. Wow. To know that they weren't against me, to know that they absolutely thought the world of me by now. And that means so much to me. It really did. And I was just like, a, just like, you know, Las Vegas lit up. I then just got in the car and just went, wow. I, I have to tell you, Marshall, I'm, it's very difficult to answer some of these questions because you talk about a technical track or a non-technical track or whatever. I, I just don't believe I've ever known what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> I just, I just, I just get in the car and drive it. You know, it's uh, if there's a corner, then that's the deal. I, I don't really have too many reference points that I even look at. I just kind of do it all on speed and just go, what will this take? And my only enemy, as far as I'm concerned, is me on what I can do, on what I can, how can I get more out of myself, you know? Um, so, yeah, the the two single lap qualifying laps at um, uh, Sears Point, I think they were within a hundredth of a second of each other. And, and this is, you know, where we're talking about the memories and the things that mean the most to you and everything else, it's, this just means so much to me. When I came into the pits and, you know, I had been a, a big boy lap, and even the Jaguar team were standing out in the pit lane clapping. And, you know, you just go, wow, thank you. And this was not the first poll for you. Tell me, uh, and I know that we, we covered this briefly uh, just ch chatting among ourselves, but that season was a bit magical for you in a from a statement-making standpoint. It might be one of the... Uh, the only times, it may be the only time I can think of where someone goes from starring on pennies in Formula 3000 to uh, rocking up in IMSA in GTP and then is, I guess we could say, quote, in Formula, Formula 1, not too much long after, but at least for how I'm looking at this uh, unexpected starring role of yours in uh, the 1990 GTP season with a, a you know, spoiling non-factory team in terms of you know non-automotive manufacturer uh, this seemed to do wonders for your reputation and to attract interest but while the race results were not always weren't there for you uh, it really seems to me that these mercurial qualifying performances where you had you know five minutes to make your name Tell me about some of the other polls. Uh, Tampa, for example. That one, uh, run, work me through that lap. Tampa got away from me, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's something that still is on my mind all these years later, and it, that hurts me really, really, really badly. Um, I knew that we were very, very quick at Tampa, and, and the thing is, the quicker that we are, the quicker I wanna go. Mm. And I must admit, I was taking liberties of that track. There was there was absolutely nothing left in it. If there'd been even the slightest kind of offline, it would have been a good night car and 
probably wouldn't have done me too many favours, but I was so enjoying absolutely being on the tightrope around that track. And it's perfect, and, too, um, for, uh, for a naturally aspirated prototype with a V8 in it. Uh, I mean, in terms of point and squirt, you, in theory, are sitting in the perfect machine. Well, no, certainly after the, the, there's a couple of corners directly after the pits where our throttle response definitely helped uh, more than the turbos. But I kind of was turning into these corners as well, Marshall. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it all sounds self-serving, but I, I do remember how I was driving and it was, you know, I'd, I'd had several laps like that in Formula 3000, to be quite honest, in qualifying. Um, so I, I kind of lived for those moments. But it was an absolute joker um, because we went out for single car qualifying and they had a watch on me. And by midpoint around the circuit, I was 1.5, I was the last car out. So I was 1.5 seconds quicker than anybody else. Uh, that's a midpoint. So I definitely knew I was on for over two seconds uh, by pole. Now, there's nothing I like better <laughs> walking down the pit lane going, I'm on pole by two seconds. <laughs> All right, boys. That <laughs> just would have given me such a thrill. But coming out the final corner, um, it all like, just fell over. And what happened was that the, uh, our refueler had put twice as much fuel in the Camel Lights car for its qualifying turn and forgot to put fuel in my car. So sure, we were running fairly light, but it's, uh, trust me, it's gonna make a difference of point one, point two, nothing more than that, you know? And uh, we, it was so cruel. I mean, it was, it was like a, one of those stupid films where you come out the final corner and I can see the start finish line and the car stopped just before it. So I couldn't set my time. And I was so hot, and I mean heartbroken. I was devastated. And as I say, it still kills me now. And I actually couldn't even get out of the car for half an hour. That's how upset I was. I just, you know, that, that pole was taken from me and I, you know, I wanted my pole positions. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, some of the bad memories stay with you as much as the good ones, really. I have to imagine, have to imagine um, sitting in that car for that long. I mean, is that what is it that you're having to muster to get out, or is it? Uh, I was trying not to. I was trying not to show everybody how much I was crying. Hmm. You know, I was heartbroken. I just could not believe this had happened. I couldn't believe it. It, it just, you know, you've just put. I mean, to see your heart and soul into the lab is an understatement. It was, you know, I felt, I don't know, I could get carried away with the analogies here. I felt as if I was conducting a symphony in the car and it, and then you know, the entire brass section fell over at the end. How was that for an analogy? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, was, that was it. It, it was just, uh, yeah, it broke my heart. But then pole at uh, New Orleans was great fun. That was that was pretty good, um, and that was again very very close. And uh, I think our throttle response helped a bit round there against the Nissans and the Toyotas. But I tell you something, that was the only circuit we were going to do it in 1991 because by then both the Nissans and the Toyotas had really got their act together on power. Uh, we could not stay with those guys at all. I mean, in 1990 down the straights, they were saying good night, but. They'd, they'd really got their act together by 91 they really had especially Toyota you know 
and Jaguar weren't far off either. So and was what fun. was it like racing this uh, this insurgent prototype, the Spice Chevy? What was it like racing this against these giant factory efforts where you know money was no object for them, and it was certainly a massive object of frustration by comparison, at least for your team. What was it like being that, you know, the pirate among uh, captains, per se, and having to go and and take on these folks who, you know, I think they went into every race expecting to win, uh, as they should have. But tell me about some of the racing. I know that you had some great battles as well uh, during this uh, helpful year. Yeah, you had some great battles. Um, But, you know, some of those teams are enormous. Um, But you look at the drivers as well. And, uh, you know, there's the occasional driver where I just keep an eye on them thinking, you're pretty good. You are pretty good. One of those was Brabham. Mm. I thought Jeff Brabham was very, very good, you know. Um, James Weaver, if he'd been in the right car, um, but he wasn't in the right car when we were racing out there. But, yeah, it was was just, um, I feel that I was kind of relentless on hunting them down, you know. So... I was just being going to be applying the pressure all the time um, because there was no pressure to take. Nobody expected anything from us, really. So there was that. That was a, a luxurious situation, if you like. You know, I wasn't the head of a twenty million dollar team, and if I messed up, I've let everybody down. You know, I think we had about three hundred thousand uh, dollars to compete in the stuff we did. So it was great fun going out and tripping them up. You know, I, I really loved it. You know, I used to you know, like looking at everybody and just going, hey, I'm coming after you guys in my little Chevy, Spice. I tell you what was a disappointment. Chevy should have put some money into us because uh, if we had just had, you know, we, we couldn't afford to go testing. You know, this was just turning up at a race. You know, if Chevy had put some money into us, I reckon we might have won a few races, you know, instead of breaking down all the time. So where does this experience lead you because obviously you continue from there to more spice activities in 91 is there an actual bridge or any kind of connectivity to uh, the the starring moments that you had uh, in gtp at that time which was a very well-known series that uh, i think a lot of folks checked in on internationally as well were there any connective points between your performances there that did actually in your opinion at least uh, get you back on the F1 radar that you would, uh, you know, wanted to be on all along, or is, oh, uh, no question, yeah. I mean, these, you know, what what was happening certainly back here is that I'd had a, you know, I was mentioning, uh, you know, friends in the media, uh, you know, motor racing journalists, Formula One journalists, etc., and there was a lot of people who felt I should be in Formula One, so they were using what I was doing in GTP to you know, write stories in Autosport or Motoring News or some of the bigger magazines within the UK and Europe. And that was really, really great because as long as I was supplying, you know, some kind of look at what I've just done story, um, they could ramp it up and just keep me in the frame. So yeah, that's how, you know, it was, it was tenuous, but it's all about, you know, if you, if you are scrabbling for opportunities, when you do come across them, you've got to maximize them. You know, both inside the car and outside the car. I'm getting so profound as I get older, aren't I? Good Lord. 
as the adage goes, the older we get, the faster we were. So. Oh yeah. By the time I've had two bottles of wine tonight, I'll be sen- Senna. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been beautiful, mate. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to spend uh, some more time trying to think up some other fun stories we can tell from your career. And I'll, uh, Well, we'll leave you with one thing, actually. It's been a fantastic year for me with, with Lewis doing what he's done. Because now I can, with my hand on my heart, say that between me and Lewis Hammond, we've currently won four world championships. <laughs> And if he plays his cards right, I'm hoping we can go for a fifth next year. Good. It's a team effort. Yes. He's got to pull his weight as well. Well, he is slacking. I mean, he should have no, at I least seven or eight by now, so. <laughs> it's been lovely to speak to you, Marshall. Thank you, mate. Uh, greatly appreciated as always.